Welcome to Night School, taking a stab at the Middle Ages, a podcast devoted to medieval history and culture, and the occasional bad pun. I'm Becca, bringing you everything related to medieval religion and church history. And I'm Claire, talking about medieval literature and history. Welcome back, everyone. This week, we're here with Dr. Sierra Lamuto to talk about race and medieval romance with special attention to the King of Tars. Dr. Lamuto received her BA from Mills College after previously studying at the Peralta Community Colleges, City College of San Francisco, and UC Santa Cruz. She later returned to higher education, receiving her MA in English Literature from Mills College and her PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. She currently serves as an assistant professor of English at Rowan University. Throughout her career, Dr. Lamuto has developed courses on the global Middle Ages, race and medieval literature, Chaucer and Adaptation, and Travel Literature. Her current book in progress, Exotic Allies, Mongol Alterity and Racial Formations in Medieval Literature, explores the relation between global contact histories and the discursive production of racial ideologies in medieval literature. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Lamuto. Um, we're really excited. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on. Um, all right, well, let's just dive right in. We wanted to kind of start off just introducing the topic for today. So we know that the pre-modern world is sometimes left out of discussions of race, and sometimes scholars try to dangerously portray the Middle Ages as pre-racial. So we were wondering if you could kind of provide more context about how the Middle English romance genre, which was widely read in the 14th and 15th centuries, how this sheds a light on race and modes of discrimination operating in medieval England? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, Very layered question. So I will just start by saying that I don't think it's inherently dangerous to cast the Middle Ages as pre-racial. I think that, in fact, a lot of very brilliant informed scholars have made the case that it is um, a period that predates the construction of race. Um, and, and specifically, they make that argument in order to, um, to, to suggest that, that race is a construction, to show that it is not about some biological truth, but that it's an invention that has to do with economic, political, and cultural oppression. Um, And so these arguments locate a capitalist modern era as the necessary conditions through which race is constructed. And so I just want to say that I I have a lot of respect for this logic. Ultimately, though, I've just really read too many uh, medieval sources and also brilliant medievalist scholars um, to be able to subscribe to the idea that race is a strictly modern phenomenon. I think that the particular racial formations that we see emerge through the institutions of transatlantic slavery and European colonialism can be more deeply elucidated if we look at the the forms of race that emerged prior to these systems. So that said, though, I do think it can be dangerous to leave the Middle Ages out of discussions of race, because doing so has meant that the field that studies this period, medieval studies, has been often excused from thinking about race. Its students and scholars have been allowed to ignore race while still studying and producing knowledge about materials that really have held huge significance within racial systems in our own time. So that's where I think it can become dangerous. Um, And regarding the genre of medieval romance and how that fits in, 
I would say that this is the genre um, where we can see a lot of thinking going on about racial difference in the pre-modern world. It's a genre of fantasy that allowed authors and readers to not only imagine worlds beyond their own, but also to reimagine what their worlds could look like. So if we're, when, we're in, when we're in medieval England, we're not thinking about a society that has global power yet. But it is time when you can see that global power is, is being envisioned, it's being imagined in some of these romances. Um, authors and audiences are really thinking about what does it look like for us? Um, when I say us, I mean medieval English people, not you and I. Um, but so medieval English people are thinking about what does it mean for us to gain and have global power? Um, and so the romances in this period, 13th and 14th century, really become sites through which we readers today, and here I do mean you and I, um, can see how literature not only reflected, but also produced culture. How these uh, romances actually show us systems of thought in the making, and race being one of the most important systems of thought that have shaped our social and cultural realities. Awesome. Thank you for that clarification. Um, I've never thought about it the other way around, about how it couldn't be dangerous, or like based what you were saying. So um, yeah, that's interesting. So you write about the complex ways medieval racial formations operate beyond mere depiction slash description of different skin colors or physiognomies. So we were wondering if you could tell us what are some of the leading theories of racial formations that medieval scholars discuss today and how do they inform the concept of the exotic ally, which you coin in your research? Yeah, so just to... Um sort of frame it, uh, racial formation theory is basically the idea that race is a social construction, that it is something that is made up through social and cultural, economic, political relations, rather than something that is natural, that describes natural differences among human beings. This idea at a very basic level is established knowledge at this point. Um, pretty much any, most people can understand that, that race is a social construction. But because race is so tied to our bodies, because it is something that is so visibly rendered and that has such real consequences based on our perceptions of physical differences, it is really nearly impossible to get rid of what Stuart Hall has famously called the biological trace when we think about race. Even though we know that it's a social construction, it doesn't make it any less real, and it's very difficult to disentangle it from our bodies, from physiognomic differences. But it's really important to remember that race isn't actually something that we innately have or that we are. Um, physical differences aren't automatically racial differences. Our bodies become tools of racial ideology. So they become something that can be leveraged and negotiated within racialized systems. And so scholars talk about race being a verb rather than a noun. And I think this is a really useful way to think about it because it pushes us to see beyond the noun that race points to, our bodies, our identities, and to the relations of power that actually make um, 
you know, beyond, our, it helps us to see beyond our bodies and our identities, the noun of it all, and helps us to see the relations of power that make our bodies and identities legible within its systems. And um, to get to your question about Mongols and um, exotic allies, in my specific work, um, I look at how Mongols are represented in medieval romances in particular, um, but not only romances. I'm also interested in the broader European discourses that informed and helped shape those romances. And in this discourse, you don't really see a consistent focus on the bodies of Mongols and their physical differences. Sometimes, and particularly in the romances, especially the King of Tars, um, their physical differences are either inconsequential or non-existent. I don't think, though, that this means that they aren't represented as a distinct race, um, specifically a race that functions in very strategic ways to produce power um, and sustain that power for the dominant Christian body in the text. Um, I think the fact that their physical difference isn't always visible does not mean that they are not racialized. And in fact, my argument has been that if we read the Mongols as a race, and specifically as a race whose physical difference is not the focal point, then the insidiousness of race can become much clearer as it moves us very quickly past what I think is a superficial notion um, that I hear a lot uh, in medievalist scholarship and medievalist discourse, um, that if medieval people didn't really care about skin color or didn't put the same value judgments on skin color as we do now, um, then race really didn't exist then. So to my mind, this logic actually veers us very closely to a logic of colorblind, race, colorblind racism, um, which is something that I do think we see a lot of in academia in general. Definitely. And I guess kind of continuing with your discussion of um, your research on the Mongols and how perhaps their visual physical differences weren't as um, obviously displayed, but it was more, as you were saying, like linked to power and Christianity and things like that. Could you provide some more historical context? Um, I know you do this in your papers, but to share with our listeners kind of about the Mongol and the Latin Christian European alliance and how it might have influenced this idea that you're talking about um, of exotic allies and things like that. Yeah, um, so the relationship between the Mongols and Latin Europe um, in the Middle Ages is very long and, and um, complex. Um, and so in my research, I sort of try to, um, you know, look into that and, and see how it shifts over time um, and how those shifts impact the, the fantasy literature. Um, as, as an origin point for that connection between the Mongols and Latin Europe, um, I locate the, um, or identify the um, legend of Prester John as sort of the origin point for this, um, for this connection. So when the Mongols were first introduced into to, to Latin Europe, um, it was within a crusading context, and specifically the Fifth Crusade, which took place in Egypt roughly around 1220. And the, at the same time, in the 1220s, um, Genghis Khan and his army were making their way westward across Central Asia, and they were conquering several Muslim territories. So when news of his mil military campaigns reached the Crusaders in Egypt, what they heard was not, oh, you know, here's Genghis Khan and the Mongols who are actually religiously quite diverse um, and have no allegiance to Latin Christianity, 
what they heard was that there was a powerful warrior from the East heading their way um, who was not allying with the Muslims, but was actually fighting and conquering them, which aligned with the Latin Christians' um, goals. Um, and so this resonated with a popular and enduring legend from the Crusades from a century earlier, that of um, Prester John, who is a priest king. Um, he's a fantasy, but he's specifically a crusading fantasy. And this fantasy created a, it, it manufactured a Christian utopia in the lands all the way beyond the Muslim regions of Syria and Palestine in a fantastical Eastern space um, where there were, you know, these mighty, powerful Christian allies and saviors um, who were going to help um, reconquer Jer Jerusalem. Um, so when the Crusaders in the 13th century heard about the Mongols sweeping westward across Central Asia, they grafted this legend onto them and they turned the Mongols into Christian saviors akin to Prester John. And in fact, in some of the legends, Genghis Khan is Prester John or he's his descendant. So in my work, I, you, I've coined and I've come up with this term exotic allies to describe their particular racial formation in medieval European discourse. My argument is that this discourse is interested in containing what was seen as a barbaric ferocity among the Mongols and harnessing it into a source that can serve these Latin Christian aims, um, you know, their ideological and military campaigns against Islam. So ally doesn't work on its own. I, I qualify ally with exotic um, because I think it's a term that holds and allows for the kind of ambivalence that specifically characterizes the Mongols in this discourse. They're both saviors and monsters um, at the same time. So you also discuss racial performances in Edward III's 14th century tournaments, which Rebecca and I both from what I know, we didn't know about. Um, so we were interested in asking you about. So um, what features of these performances contributed to the particular racialized perceptions of the Mongols? Yeah, so these tournaments, you know, when we think of medieval tournaments, we think of jousting. And, you know, the main thing that we think, at least, you know, me prior to um, becoming a medievalist, is thinking about how tournaments are really a place for knights to demonstrate their martial prowess, like how masculine they are. Um, and certainly that, is, that was the case, um, but they were also occasions for pageants, particularly under Edward III. Um, pageants became a feature of his tournaments where the performance of foreign people, such as Mongols, were offered up as entertainment. And these performances impacted how local people in England came to know about the Mongols. Um, and so the one that I talk about in my article is the Cheapside Tournament of 1331. And in this, um, at this tournament, the, the knights are processing through, um, through London, um, you know, wearing masks that are meant to look like Mongol men. But of course, these are representations. There's nothing neutral about them. Um, they're made to look terrifying to convey that masculine prowess of the English knights. And at the same time, they're leading ladies with chains, English ladies with chains. And so the sexual dominance over women's bodies is part of this display and performance um, or assertion of male chivalric power. 
And so what you see in that pageant is the way that Mongol identity is equated with something that is terrorizing, but not something terrorizing to where it needs to be eradicated, um, something terrorizing that needs to be appropriated and harnessed for English purposes. That's definitely interesting, um, especially, you know, the aspect of female bodies being represented and wrapped into that as well. And I think that's something that we see also in The King of Tars, which you write much about. Um, so I guess we could dive into that a little bit more. So could you tell us more about how this romance reimagines a 13th century chronicle and kind of, I guess, more generally how race operates in this romance? Yeah, it has so many weird things that go on in it, but also just such an interesting history behind it. Um, the source material of it is fascinating. So that's the Floris Historiarum that you, um, that you mentioned is one of the sources for the King of Tars. And the relationship between the King of Tars and the Floris Historiarum is, it, to my mind, an example of the intimacy between history writing and romance literature in this period. History Chronicles, as you may know, really had no problem including fantastical stories and miracles alongside factual real events. Um, they get completely commingled. And likewise, romances, which were explicitly fantastical, could impact the course of history. Um, it's a relationship that really, I think, reveals to us the way that literature does not only reflect its sociopolitical context, but also produces them. Um, so in the Flores Historium, um, there's a story told about an Armenian Christian princess who has a child with a pagan Mongol. The child is born monstrous, um, hairy specifically. And when the child is baptized, he becomes this beautiful baby. And the pagan Mongol witnesses this happening and the miracle prompts him to then convert to Christianity. But that's not the end of his conversion story. So then he actually goes on to slaughter, um, you know, all of the Muslims in, in the region and helps to, to, to reconquer Jerusalem. So you see the crusade fantasy at, at play. Um, so this is the same more or less story that we find in the King of Tars with some, you know, alterations and embellishments. For example, in the romance, the Mongols are already Christian. Um, and the child is not just born hairy, but actually without life or limb. Um, and it's given life and beautiful form upon uh, baptism. But in both, we can see how Mongols are cast as agents of Muslim conversion and genocide. And this is, again, where I think you really see the exotic ally playing out because they are cast as Christian allies. And at the same time, I think that their exoticism is crucial to their representation. The fact that um, they're not just Christians who, um, you know, they're not just any Christians that are able to affect um, Muslim conversion um, in the text. They're, they're Mongols, I think, matters. Um, and I really believe that these stories, you know, the King of Tars, these romances, they're not merely just stories. Um, they're really narratives that produced a culture of xenophobia and Christian supremacy in medieval England. And they, they fuel the development of colonial city, colonialist ideologies that did come to have real consequences in real life. Um, I've had and I've seen, you know, scholars kind of sometimes push back on these kinds of readings because 
you know, they, they say, which is true, they say, you know, England does not have global power at this time. They're not actually colonizing anyone. And certainly, of course, that is true. Um, but England did eventually become a global power and colonize half the world. So their belief in their right to do this, that the ideologies that enabled them to do these things didn't just pop out of the ether. And I think it's important to think about, well, where did they come from? Um, and so fantasy space is a good place to look. So something I'm interested in in my own research is like how women's bodies kind of incorporate into the colonialist fantasies of Middle English romances. And so um, I'm going to ask you a question about it. Um, so how does the text's racial formation of the princess's character in general represent the romance's colonialist fantasy? So I've always been fascinated by the women in these romances. There's always one, at least one woman. Um, but she plays a really significant role, whether she's a princess or she's just like, you know, really important lady. Um, you know, she plays a really important role. The, the, the narrative actually relies on her to resolve the main tension of the text. And the main tension in these crusading romances um, are that Muslims are the enemy. And, you know, how can we, the Christians, um, you know, convert them or, you know, eliminate them. Um, and it is a woman who's being, who's given a very active role in that. She, her active role is an evil role. Um, so we often think of like, you know, women who have agency, you know, it's a good thing. We want to you know, recover that from history, but sometimes the agency that women hold are, you know, um, not good, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, for example, in the King of Tars with um, without the princess of Tars, the Muslim sultan wouldn't have converted um, and he wouldn't have raised his army against his Muslim neighbors. So there's an important illustration of how women are conscripted into racial colonial projects. And it's, it's just, it, it's not only men um, who are doing the harm. Definitely. And I think that's a really interesting way to consider the text in a new light. We also kind of wanted to touch upon um, more like modern applications of some of the issues we've been talking about. So one of the things that we were interested in learning more about is kind of, unfortunately, we've seen white supremacist groups throughout history kind of appropriating and weaponizing different medieval symbols or iconographies, especially recent years. And this is a topic that you've written different public pieces about. So we were wondering if you could share for our listeners kind of, you know, what is this connection between medieval symbolism and white supremacy and how have or should scholars kind of address this issue, if you have anything to share about that? Yeah, it's a big one. Um, <laughs> I really could go on for hours about this. Um, my thinking on it changes, you know, from day to day, year to year. Um, and so I'll just say right off the bat, I don't really know how scholars can address this. Um, my opinion on it does shift um, from time to time, but I will talk about you know, where I'm at right now. So, well, so just to, to yeah, contextualize this a bit, um, the connection between white hate groups and the Middle Ages, that is something that really goes back a long time. Um, and by long time, you know, I mean, I, we could actually look at the crusading romances that we've just been talking about um, as sort of the first instance of it. Um, you know, these romances often distort, distort history in order to create narratives that serve their own goals of supremacy. 
So we could actually go back um, to the Middle Ages for this. But in recent history, there are numerous examples. Um, Hitler, I think, is one of the most famous ones. He fashioned himself a medieval knight. Um, but also members of the Ku Klux Klan call themselves knights. Um, and the wealthiest donor of the alt-right has an organization named after Charles Martel. Um, Charles Martel is Charlemagne's grandfather. Charlemagne being probably the most famous uh, medieval king um, who came to stand in for you know, Christian grandeur and greatness. Um, and so this organization is actually named after his grandfather. Um, and then, you know, numerous white, white uh, terrorists um, have been obsessed with the Middle Ages. And we've seen that. We saw that at Christchurch, uh, New Zealand, um, the terrorists who attacked the mosque, um, you know, numerous, numerous examples. Um, and in all of these cases, really what we're seeing is how the Middle Ages functions as a heritage site for whiteness and an, a, a place, a site where um, these white um, supremacists can um, find ideological justification for their beliefs. So, you know, of course, academics who work on the Middle Ages do not condone these connections. You know, we all hate this connection. But I will say this, that they have really only started hating it and doing anything about it since 2017. Um, and in 2017, the reason why is because it was put on public blast at Charlottesville. Um, it really wasn't until Charlottesville that the field at large as a whole really started caring about these connections. Um, it was embarrassing for them. It made many medievalists feel ashamed or maybe worried that people would think that they too are white supremacists um, because the majority of the field are white scholars. Um, but when it felt distant as something, you know, that didn't really, nobody was really talking about it, they, it wasn't on blast. Um, it was something people were perfectly content to ignore. And so my work in this area focuses on how that willful ignorance in the field since its conception, well, I would say it's not willful ignorance since its conception, but in the last you know, few decades, it's been willful ignorance, um, has led to the further entrenchment of white supremacy in the field. Um, and I'm personally less interested in demonstrating how the Middle Ages isn't a white fantasy. I mean, certainly that is true. The Middle Ages is not actually a white fantasy. If you go and you know, learn about the actual Middle Ages, you will see um, you know, the diversity, the, the, the conflicts, I mean, it's much, it's a, it's a complicated world, just like our world is today. Um, but I'm less interested in really sort of de debunking this myth. And I'm more interested in showing how it has absolutely been constructed um, as a white fantasy beyond the academy, but also within the academy. And so, you know, that's what I'm personally interested in doing um, to sort of combat this. Um, but certainly there are a lot of scholars who, you know, are trying to debunk this method publicly. And I think that there's value in that, too. So you have written extensively about racism in the academic field. How does medieval studies often propel a white Middle Ages? And what progress is being made toward institutional equity right now? So I think actually right now medieval studies, um, the mainstream of medieval studies is trying to not propel 
the idea of a white middle ages. I think that um, the field sort of at its core has done that. I think medieval studies was created as a racial project in support of whiteness. So at its core, it has done that. I think right now in this moment in time, the mainstream of the field is trying to undo that. And one of the ways they're doing that is by really embracing this, this greater turn in the field towards the global. So they're really trying to think about, you know, what, what are the relationships between Europe and other places around the world? Um, you know, Africa, Asia, the Americas, you know, everywhere. Um, what's going on in the Middle Ages? Everywhere around the world. Like how is Europe actually, during the Middle Ages, peripheral? Um, they're not that important, um, you know, in the Middle Ages. And certainly England, couldn't matter less, um, you know, in the global world um, in the Middle Ages. Um, so it's really like, they're really, I think the field is trying to make that explicit um, and do a lot of um, collaborative work with other, you know, experts out beyond, um, beyond Europe. And so that's really great. Um, sometimes that can veer into what I think is like a diversity sort of initiative, where it's a very superficial way of dealing with the issues. Um, it's, it's sort of like, you know, we're just going to diversify what the Middle Ages are um, in order to uh, combat this idea that um, the Middle Ages are white. But that I feel like is a whole nother conversation. And I actually have an article that's coming out about this um, in post-medieval's um, anniversary issue soon. So there's a lot um, more stuff that I've been saying about this. But in general, I do think it's a good thing to be thinking globally. And so what progress is being made, um, that's one of them. I will say also, I've seen, especially since, um, you know, George Floyd's murder um, in May, I, you know, we've seen Field actually holding webinars, um, you know, thinking about race and racism in the field. But um, also state violence. So Race Before Race is an organization that Ayanna Thompson is heading over at um, Arizona State University. And I, I think it was her that organized an, a panel on, with medievalists and early modernists talking about state violence and drawing connections between the medieval and the modern. Um, that was really useful and interesting. The, the Medieval Academy of America also did some webinars um, thinking about specifically racism in the field. Um, so I think the field is trying, but I will say that I think sometimes they just have trouble doing it because there isn't a long-standing relationship between medieval studies and critical race studies, um, post-colonial studies, the studies where the work is really happening to think about these kinds of power dynamics and state violence against Black bodies. So they're struggling to, I think, to do something about it, but they're trying. Yes, definitely. Hopefully we'll see some more interdisciplinary work in the future, but I think we'll probably try to link maybe some of those resources in our episode recap that you mentioned and keep an eye out for your forthcoming article. <laughs> um, but I think that's all the time we have for questions today, but we really appreciate you sharing your insight on these modern issues as well as, you know, taking the time to discuss your research. So thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to see you guys doing this and being interested in the Middle Ages. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. That's all the time that we have. Um, for our listeners, be sure to stay tuned for our next episode on Piers Plowman with Dr. Emily Steiner.